Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season four, episode eight, our season four finale, our last movie on Hulu, at least until it comes back around again, if it comes back around again. And today we are going back to February of 2016 and talking about Deadpool. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matty, how are you doing? Doing good. Uh, finishing up summer vacation. This is my last weekend of summer vacation, and I start work back up next week. So this Ooh. this season has taken us all the way through my summer vacation. Yeah, yeah. You'll you'll have to join join the working force once more, and we yeah. are at the tail end of our vacation so we're we're both seeing our freedom slipping away here slipping away you know i'm glad to be getting paid again so that that part's nice yeah that is (laughs) i can imagine why that would be nice uh so deadpool this as i said this movie came out in february of 2016 had you seen it before we watched this how many times i had seen it it, i think three times before this so for this is my fourth Mm -hmm. time watching it Okay. And did you see it in theaters when it came out? I was trying to remember this. I can't remember. I I thought that I went to the theater and watched it, but I can't remember. I don't remember the specific experience of going to the theater, but I think that I would have gone to the theater theater to see this one. I know I didn't see the second one in the theater, so I can't remember for sure, but I, I think I would have gone to the theater to watch it. Got it. And what's your? How much experience do you have with the X Men film franchise? Not as much as you do. I've watched every X Men film franchise movie, but we just watched them all together as a family and finished them just like this last week. Before that, I had been kind of vaguely watching the X Men franchise, but I had missed a couple, and specifically, I'd missed Wolverine. And I didn't, I can't, Logan came out after this one, right? Or before, I can't remember Uh, for sure. But regardless, I hadn't watched Logan either. But I didn't follow the X-Men franchise very closely. I didn't watch X-Men First Class in the theater. I watched Days of Future Past in the theater and Apocalypse in the theater, but just one time each. So I wasn't, I never followed the franchise super closely. Got it, yeah, and... For me, I, yeah, I saw most of the movies in this franchise when they, when they came out. And then I sort of, once the franchise was dead, like once it was clear that it wasn't really continuing, then I stopped seeing them. Although I have now, so I think Logan was probably the last one that I saw in theaters. And then the rest I've sort of watched as as they've come out. So I was able to just check my our our chat logs about it and it looks like you saw this like right after it came out in theaters. <laughs> I yeah, have a message from you on February 13th, 2016 at 8:23 p.m. where you said Deadpool was exactly what you expected it to be. And then ah, I said go. in a good way and you said in good and bad ways. Sounds like uh, sounds like my reaction. 
at the time, and I think that reaction is kind of, you know, for me, held up up until this last viewing. So that's kind of been where it's been at in my mind since then. Yeah, so I, this was not a movie that was really on my horizon when it came out. Like, I wasn't... I had read a fair amount of Deadpool comics, but I didn't, like, love any of them. Like, I I think I probably just haven't, hadn't really read any of the, like, famous or popular ones. Although there was one where he, like, goes around through time and kills a bunch of historical figures that I thought was pretty fun. Like, historical figure zombies. But other than that, I'd never really fallen in love with any of his comics. And there wasn't... I didn't really know Ryan Reynolds all that well, so I didn't, I wasn't like stoked about it. I was much more excited about X-Men Apocalypse, which was coming out later this year. And the movie studio also, I don't think was all that excited about it, which is why they released it in February. But then once it started getting good buzz and good reviews, then yeah, I went with my roommates at the time, or maybe they were neighbors at the time, think ken logan and matt and i all former roommates of mine all went to see it together in theaters and i had not rewatched it until now very exciting yeah super fun yeah i will say the other thing that i know about deadpool is i had played a bunch of the lego marvel superheroes game and deadpool is like a very central character in that game not as you don't really play that many missions with Deadpool, but all of the secrets, when you unlock them, Deadpool is like involved and he's the narrator of the game for several sections of, of things that are happening. And he's narrating them in kind of a very metafictional way, which isn't surprising because of Deadpool. And he like teaches you different controls and what different, what different powers or items do it at different parts of the game as well. And so my my experience with the character Deadpool largely came from that video game. And mm. and it, so I had filtered kind of uh, my ideas of Deadpool through that. Is this our first, this is our first comic book movie, right? This is our first comic book movie that we've covered on the show. And I think that is a good transition into the justifications. We've been thinking a lot about like when to introduce some superhero slash comic book films and other kinds of things. And so we've had a little bit of discussion about when to do them and when not to do them, all of those kinds of things and where to start. And kind of one of the reasons why we wanted to do Deadpool here is because it felt like a really good place to start with a superhero film because it doesn't feel tied so strongly into uh, a certain canon timeline so it's one that you can kind of cover at any spot and that that was one of the big reasons for me why i wanted to do this film as opposed to other superhero films to start off with yeah it's sort of i mean if you just sort of looked at the list of videos that or list of movies that we've covered I think once you listen to the podcast, it becomes pretty clear because we talk about it a lot. But like both of us have a pretty strong predilection towards superhero movies and comic book movies. Like we really like them. We see them generally when they come out and then spend a lot of time talking about them. So I but I don't know if that would be clear if you just were running down the list of episodes that we have done, because it's always a little like it's a little weird to start with the first one, because then it's like, well, are you going to do all of them? And yeah, as you said, this is a really 
great way to just sort of jump in and then we can jump right out. And then there is sort of the added benefit of there is a third Deadpool movie that's announced that's coming out. And at some point, once that comes out, people might be looking for content for the first couple movies. And it's always nice to have those tent poles for our opening and closing of seasons. We really like to open and close with movies that are very popular and have a good amount of people who have seen them because we understand that like there is a pretty high barrier to entry to (laughs) listening to a podcast for a movie you haven't seen you have to listen to the podcast and then go find the movie and hopefully it's still on the streaming service like that is the whole point of the podcast but as we've seen and as we see with this movie it isn't always still on the streaming service and so it it just helps goose the download numbers a little bit and helps goose the interaction with y'all with people who are listening if it's a movie that people already have seen if they don't have to like pause halfway through or whatever yeah exactly it's a it's a really good entry point for new listeners is to sum up a lot of that a lot of that stuff for lots of different reasons and then the other thing that i think is particularly good about deadpool for this podcast is that it's deconstructing super the superhero genre so it lends itself really well to discussion in this kind of critical in-depth discussion so that's kind of the reasons why we wanted to pick this one yeah absolutely and i also remembered having a really fun time with this one so was happy to revisit it especially because i haven't seen it for six years right exactly it's been a long time yeah And a lot has happened in those six years. So let's talk a little bit about what was going on when this movie came out. This is so this is the second movie that we've covered for the podcast from 2016. The last one was or the only other one was Train to Busan. So this is our only American movie from from 2016 so far. And uh, I don't think <laughs> I don't think we need to remind people what happened in 2016. 2016 was a big turning point for this country, but it always is interesting when I'm trying to like pinpoint specific times of that year, like where where were our feelings in February of 2016? Because this yeah. was. This was well before the primaries were over, so well before Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton had clinched the nominee and I nomination. And one of the things that surprised me when I was looking it up was how much coverage there was of the Democratic primaries. And the, it's just like something that, of course, I remember happened, but I don't think of that Sturm und Drang like when I think about 2016. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Totally understand. And it's it was weird seeing this. Like, February was weird of that year because you could feel like this um, oncoming storm of the election. But yeah, mo- most of my time was spent thinking about what was happening in the Democratic primaries. And I think a lot of people were kind of just sort of ignoring the Republican primaries. I felt like a lot of times I was like waving my arms, like pay attention to the what's happening here. It's going to be a problem. You know, if nobody does anything about it and then I don't know, the, the media obviously was, was giving a lot of time to like Donald Trump rallies and things like that. But I feel like most of the, 
most of the circles the to which I belong to were just n- not paying that much attention to it at the time period. Yeah, I I would I don't remember it being something that I was like concerned about or thinking about when I watched this movie when I went into the movie. So I was kind of expecting to find like I went back in the 538 archives and found some of their coverage from around this time and I was kind of expecting to find that they that this would have still been at the point where they were downplaying Donald Trump's candidacy but instead I found almost exactly the opposite on February 12th of or sorry February 10th so 2 days before this movie came out Nate Silver had written an article with the headline Republicans need to treat Donald Trump as the front runner. And so this was just following the New Hampshire primary, which had happened, I think, like a week earlier or a, what, a week and a half earlier before this movie came out. And at that point, like the fail, the Republicans failure to coalesce around a non Donald Trump candidate, like was was I believe the point where it became very clear that the Republican the GOP establishment was in trouble and yeah. so and I remember I remember that article I remember reading that article I remember listening to the podcasts around that time I remember the discussion so I like specifically that headline I remember I remember it too I just didn't remember it linked up with this movie so yeah it who who knows like it's possible i was just like in a different place when i saw it because i was you know going to a weird blockbuster movie in february or i'm just misremembering stuff that that happens too so for sure yeah makes sense a couple big things that happened in 2015 so in december of 2015 so right just a couple months before this movie came out as always, we can anchor ourselves to a mass shooting in this country. So December 2nd, 2015 was the San Bernardino shooting. Uh, but 10 days after that, December 12th, 2015, was something that was a lot better, a lot happier, and something that we tended not to think about too much until our ex-president our former president made a big deal out of it and that was the paris climate accords came out of the meeting on december 12th of 2015 that's yeah much better much better news um the news afterwards with that and how it's progressed since that time period have not been such good news it would have been you know if we could have stuck to all the stuff with the paris climate accord it would have been a lot better uh if that makes (laughs) sense Yes, it does. And then the only other thing that I had pulled from around this time was the day after this movie came out, and it looks like the day that you saw this movie, uh, Scalia died. And so there was a lot of 538 coverage about who Obama was going to nominate and who Obama would be able to get through. And of course, as we know, none of that ended up coming to fruition at all ended up getting stonewalled but we didn't know that was going to happen at that point yeah yeah it's a i i was looking back through um the time period trying to figure out what i was thinking about that and apparently not i was just that was the kind of thing where i was 
kicking that down the road because I knew that it was going to be something that wouldn't be resolved for months and months. So I didn't have a lot of thoughts when I went to go see this movie. That wasn't something that was, even though it had happened that day, it wasn't something top of mind because I knew it was something that just was not going to be dealt with for, for a long time period. Turns out it was even longer than I thought it would be into, you know, a year into the next presidency. It, it would have been something that was on my mind and that I was thinking about because I, I do very clearly remember listening to the podcast of the Rachel Maddow show for the day after. So it would have been on the 14th or Valentine's uh, I Day. Guess for, yeah. I guess for now, nah, it would, probably would have been for the Monday, I guess, where she talks about talked about how it was likely to she talked she ran down obama's legacy and then ran down that he was going to get another supreme court nominee and at the time or supreme court justice onto the court and at the time i just didn't necessarily know enough or wasn't cynical enough to really question that so i yeah i I think i assumed that it was going to all go through (laughs) as normal which is not what happened, um, mm-hmm. very unfortunately. You know, I'm thinking that probably what happened is the news came out while I was at this movie. I probably didn't know about it until after I got back from Deadpool because I would have seen Deadpool like in the sometime in like the afternoon, and I bet the news came out later on in, uh, after the afternoon. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 it does. So yeah. Anyway. So yeah, 2016, quite quite a year. Oh, I can run down the top 10 films of this year because this film does make it in. It is number nine. And it is, at the time, it was the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. Yes. It is now, it's now third, is that correct? That sounds right. I didn't look this up, but that sounds right. Yeah, I'll I'll look it up while you're talking, but I I believe it's now behind Joker and Deadpool 2 just barely beat it out. Makes sense. And then the other films that were released this year, you have just like, it was a very big box office year, one of the bigger box office years leading up to like 2017. But you had the biggest movie of the year was Captain America Civil War. uh, And then you had Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And so you had... In that year, you had a Captain America film, you had a Star Wars film, you have a bunch of other Marvel films, you've got, on top of that, you've got two major Disney films with Finding Dory and Zootopia. I should say three major Disney films because the live action, in quotation marks, The Jungle Book also came out that year. You've got Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Suicide Squad rounding up those superhero films. So that is kind of where things were at in the time period. And it was it was a very competitive year in the box office. A lot of movies made a lot of money. But if you were kind of a smaller film, it was easy to get just swallowed up on one of these release weekends deadpool released in february so it was releasing normally february is like where films go to die they films get released in that time period when the studio doesn't have much confidence in them and how much money they're going to make and so deadpool was kind of a surprise hit at the time period and because it opened in a time period where all those other it wasn't in competition with all those other films it really had room to breathe when it came out I think Deadpool is actually the movie 
where I learned about that February is where movies drop off the movies that they that studios drop off movies that they expect to die because I think I remember the discourse around this movie and how how well it did at the time and because it they happened to release a movie that people wanted to see and that was well received in in February. Yeah, and a lot of the discourse talked about specifically how it was released on Valentine's Day, which is normally, you know, it, Valentine's Day is one of the least competitive box office days in the entire year. There's usually like some romantic films that people go to, but most people don't go to the movies on Valentine's Day. Most people will spend their money going to like restaurants or other kinds of dates and things like that. And and the movies just are very dead. So it was a very strange thing that this was like the big Valentine's Day movie of the year. Lots of people went to it on Valentine's Day with their significant others. It was like a romance story, superhero movie, raunchy comedy. All of those things all tied together. So, you know, it's it was a very unique circumstance when this film released. Yeah. So yes, Deadpool, what is the third highest grossing R-rated film and coming in right below it is Matrix Reloaded. Makes sense. And it is Joker and Deadpool too. Oh, and I did also want to say that we don't always talk about how things line up with the Academy Award years, unless we're talking about an Academy Award nominee. But this is a year that a lot of people will remember because it is, and of course the Ceremony wouldn't be for a year after, until a year after this, but the 2016 year is the year where La La Land did not beat Moonlight, but <laughs> was mistakenly announced as the winner at the at the Academy Awards. Yeah. So that is something that people probably do remember. Yikes. Yikes, indeed. And I think it is also worth noting X-Men Apocalypse, the X-Men movie that I was excited for, and I think a lot of people were excited for. I certainly remember there being more buzz around it. That did not make the top 10 list. That movie was pretty roundly panned, and I'd have to look up what it opened against, because that was in May of this year, so presumably a much more competitive month. But yeah, Dead, Deadpool was able to beat it out. Beat it out by $240 million. So I had some of the stats for Deadpool. And Deadpool's budget was $58 million. Um, Jeez. Which is an incredibly small budget for this kind of film, a superhero film. So by comparison, X-Men Origins Wolverine had a budget of $150 million. Which is... Jeez. Uh, Ryan Reynolds was also in that one portraying a less faithful rendition of the Deadpool character. <laughs> uh, X-Men Apocalypse cost $180 million. Civil War cost $250 million. And then Rogue One, pretty sure this was the most expensive movie of the year, cost $265 million. Most of these movies, even the animated films like Finding Dory, Zootopia, The Jungle Book, all those films were also quite expensive. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Suicide Squad, for example. Suicide Squad cost... Oh, what was it? Uh, $180 million. So r- about three times the budget of this film and came in $40 million under the box office total. So this this movie had an incredible return on investment. It made more than X-Men Origins. It made more than X-Men Apocalypse. And it was competing with movies far outside of its weight class. It is. It was incredibly popular relative to how much it cost to make it, but also relative to the marketing, which was 
they had an even their budget for the marking was even smaller in comparison to other films than your typical superhero film and all of those kinds of things. And the marketing was primarily done through like guerrilla marketing or viral marketing and all of those kinds of things. And there's a lot that you can see. There's a lot of discussion and analysis of the marketing of Deadpool because it was it, it changed kind of the way that studios were looking at superhero films and how to market them because it was so meta they were able to do a lot of different kinds of promotional um promotional things with it in order to raise awareness about the film so all that stuff's really interesting it's a it's a film that performed you know really well considering the resources it had oh ooh, the other thing that that i thought was worth mentioning here is that 10 percent of deadpool's budget was they cut 10 percent of the budget out two days before filming st- started so the studio just called up ten, two days before st- uh, filming started and said hey we're cutting 10 percent of the budget out yeah and there that directly impacted some of the scenes so we'll we'll talk it, one of the scenes that we have to talk about it directly impacted that so we'll we'll talk about that when we get there um because you can they, they had to sort of change the change the movie around a bit to to make that work and for that guerrilla marketing campaign one of the things they did was they ryan reynolds was just like all in for this movie and he he, i guess he kept one of his like deadpool costumes so that he could keep going around and continue shooting spots and doing spots for the movie and that is doesn't look like he got paid or at least didn't get paid like the normal rate that he that a star for a blockbuster movie would would get paid for those spots you know he just wanted people to see the movie and i th- i think there was a general sense and i certainly understand why this would have been the case that like deadpool was a is a beloved character and that if they got people to know about it whether they are people who loved the character from the comics like then those people would see the movie and they would like the movie and that there was an audience of people who didn't read the comic because there aren't comic readers, but would be able to fall in love with his irreverence and what makes him Deadpool if they were able to get them to see the movie. Yeah, and all the metafictional stuff, I think that yeah. that uh, Ryan Reynolds really believed in the character. And I think this is a good point for us to transition into the personnel behind the film. And Ryan yeah. Reynolds is the guy. Like the, the reason why this movie exists is because Ryan Reynolds worked really really hard 10 years of his life working on this film to get this film get this film put together and so the way that he came to this was he was on blade trinity a film that i haven't seen but while he was on blade trinity somebody that he worked with was like you know you remind me you would be really good to play the character of deadpool and Ryan Reynolds is like, who's who's that? And he says, oh, here's some comics. And so he handed him some comics. And so he opens it up. And the very first page that he opens up to, he opens it up and looks at it. And there's a reference to himself, Ryan Reynolds. Deadpool is talking about him. And he's like, this is, it's destiny. I have to play this character. And he just really connected with the character as he was reading it. And felt that, you know, he was the right person for the job. And so he started trying to get it made. And no one wanted to make a Deadpool film. Um, nobody believed in the character in the in the studios, Fox specifically. They just did not think that it would be a character that was worth doing. They didn't believe in like 
a rated R uh, superhero film, but especially something they were worried about the way that Deadpool might tank their brand. X-Men was like, you know, their franchise that made all their money. And so they didn't want to risk it with something like Deadpool. So it was really, really difficult for him to get it made. They eventually, when they were, you know, having him work on the development, they brought him in to do X-Men Origins Wolverine and do the Deadpool character in that film. But that character was... So that film happened during the writer's strike at at the time period, the WGA strike. So they didn't have any lines for any of the characters. So his script was Deadpool comes on, fights some people, and cracks jokes. And that was his script. So he had to <laughs> he had to come up with all the jokes that are in that film. And that, you know, they weren't very good. The character was, you know, not done very well. And he was telling the studio, people are going to hate this. It is not going to go over very well. And they did. And they're like, oh, you're right about that. But they still didn't want to make the film. And it made them less likely to want to do it. So it was like, they were pulling back budget and pulling back. They wanted to cut the cut the film and cut the green light for the film. But what ended up happening is Ryan Reynolds, they, they had put together some test footage for Deadpool so that they could show the studio. And it was accidentally leaked. Uh, <laughs> and uh, went incredibly viral immediately afterwards. And then everyone that saw it was just, like people were just clamoring for the studio to make the film. And that's why the film got made is because of the leak of the test footage. What a uh, lucky accident. Yeah, what a lu- what a lucky accident. You know, it's every time that he talks about it, it's it's very funny when he talks about it because it was, you know, he was under under NDA at the time for for the stuff and he's the one that leaked the footage and like he it was putting his career and like a lot of money of his own on the line and from a legal standpoint for him to release that release that footage it was a very big risk for him so good for him that it paid off but you know it is a very risky choice that he ended up making were you familiar with ryan reynolds at this point when you saw this like i i said that i wasn't i hadn't really seen any of his stuff but had you yeah i'd seen a little bit of ryan reynolds before this specifically Let's see. He was working on... I think he did the proposal before he ended up... Yes. He ended up doing the proposal, proposal. so I remembered seeing that. And there were some other things. I'd seen him in some things beforehand, but I can't... I can't remember all the things that I had seen Ryan Reynolds in, but I I was aware of who he was when, when Deadpool came out. Got it, yeah. And we... You sort of mentioned it before, but we shouldn't gloss over how big a deal it was for this movie to be part of a franchise and to be rated R. I don't, I remember it being a really big deal at the time and it's happened since. Like obviously there's Deadpool 2 and then X-Men also felt comfortable doing Logan, which was rated R. Yes, but to to clarify, they would, that would not have happened without, without Deadpool. They wouldn't have felt as comfortable to make the film they did with Logan. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the DC has Joker. And do they have, is Birds of Prey also rated R? Yes. And I believe Suicide Squad, which also came out that year. Okay, so yeah, so so they've done a couple. Marvel still has not, right? And there's been a lot of talk, a lot of clamoring for it. 
particularly as more and more stuff gets released on Disney Plus, there's some talk of like, are they going to be able to do an R-rated movie? And I don't have they even announced yet what Deadpool three is going to be. Yeah, they've they've announced that it will definitely have the same R rating that it will have, and the same kind of comedy and violence and all of that kind of content. So yeah, that, not that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So the i guess deadpool deadpool 3 will break the uh 17 17 year old glass ceiling for marvel yeah it's it's a really interesting discussion i don't have really a dog in that fight it's i understand that a lot of people really like want to have rated r superhero films i don't have any particular you know feeling about the rating that a film has but i do you know want films to be able to be made the way that they are most appropriate to be made and i don't want a rating to be limiting for that but i also think that there's this kind of push sometimes to push something up to a rating which necessarily isn't appropriate for the story or the context and sometimes that happens on the production end, but most of the time it's happening from the from the fan side of people just wanting something to be grittier or more violent when that's not the appropriate medium for that story. Yeah, there is something a little gross and bro-y about like, uh, let's get this film to an R rating so we can feel so we can feel like adults. Yes, and exactly. Yeah, so I, I definitely feel you on that that push me pull you of like ugh, i want this stuff to be real and to be what people want it to be but also not to be artificially more violent than necessary or more sexual than necessary but you know yeah I, whatever I the know. content may be like i don't what, whatever it is yeah i i have a lot of complex thoughts about the rating system and what it does for us but i don't know that this is necessarily the the podcast for for that yeah i can sum up my thoughts real quick though which is that the rating system is stupid and shouldn't exist but that's my thoughts uh yeah well so, fair enough yeah then so. i guess it's not that complex so, yeah there it is we solved it yeah yeah so there you go i don't know that's my thoughts but we we can go on and talk about the other people involved with the film and i don't have as much to say about any of the other people involved or the other people that I picked out that were involved. The director of this film, Tim Miller, one interesting thing about him is he's a guy with a special effects background. Specifically, mm-hmm. he worked on Mass Effect 2 and Star Wars The Old Republic and was the visual effects producer for that film. So one of the people that was very much in charge of the the work that was put into those. And those are very well regarded for the stories that are told in those games. And then the other things that he's done, this was his first film that he directed, but his special effects background was very integral in making this film. He's gone on to do Terminator Dark Fate, which is a film that I love, but was very much panned by critics. And then Love, Death, and Robots, he directed an episode of that, but also did some work on several other episodes on that season and was a producer on the series. And Love, Death, and Robots is something that I love as well. And his episode was quite good on that one. Yeah, that I hadn't researched Tim Miller before this rewatch. And one of the things, I guess I'm curious if you responded the same way, but I definitely was like, man, how did they get this movie to look so good? My memory is this looks so much better than X-Men Apocalypse for yeah. a third of the budget. And... 
that makes sense. Like we're seeing a lot of VFX news about, you know, how the the teams are being affected by how all of the Marvel projects work. And one of the things that I had read that was really interesting is what happens when directors don't understand VFX and how much additional labor that adds on to the back end of things because just everything isn't set up correctly. And so there was kind of a nice synchronicity with that new, like reading all of that stuff right at this time period while also coinciding with me watching this movie and being like, oh, I bet they were really able to cut down on that VFX budget because Tim Miller knew how to set everything up so that it would be the easiest to do. That's a lot of it is that he just knew what they would need. And so they just didn't, he knew what would be covered by special effects and what wouldn't. And so they just didn't film the things that didn't need to be done. uh, And they filmed the things that didn't need to be done. And they did it in ways that specifically made it easier for them to do the special effects for it. And so he was able to do it for, make it look like a, a big budget superhero blockbuster with a fully CGI character in it as well and still make this all work. Yeah. And we'll, I think there's a lot of director's fingerprints in this movie. So we'll, we'll talk about his work and how he did weaving it all together a little later. I wanted to talk about a couple of the other performers in this movie. So I did want to talk about Morena Bakrin, or you, you looked up how to pronounce her name. Morena Bakrin. Marina Baccarin, mm-hmm. and she definitely wins the award for the actress who continually, when I see her in something, I'm like, oh, I know who that is. I know who that is, but I can't figure it out until I look it up. Like, she just always seems just like slightly different to me than I expect her to be. Mm-hmm. And then when I look it up, it's like, oh, of course, that's that's Inara. <laughs> yeah. And so I didn't realize until I looked her up for this, but Morena is Brazilian. She was born in, in Rio de Janeiro. And is that right? Yes, in Rio de Janeiro and moved, moved to the States when she was seven. And her her list of stuff that she has done is like she has just had a really solid career and i was pretty surprised how early firefly and serenity were in her career like those were basically her first things so she had a couple movies before before firefly started she did perfume way off broadway and roger dodger but it doesn't look like those were particularly big roles and then firefly sort of launched everything so she was able to do firefly and then serenity and then takes off in her movies but also was able to have like a few guest roles in a bunch of different tv shows just she was in an episode of always sunny in philadelphia episode of how i met your mother guest role recurring role in stargate and then also the thing that i just completely forgot she was in is she's jessica brody for the first three seasons of homeland she's the the wife that that he comes comes home to wow yeah and she's also in the flash and is a a recurring character there as well oh i yeah i haven't watched the flash or i've watched the first um the first couple couple episodes of the flash but haven't haven't watched a lot of it yes i've watched a little bit of the first season and i did did see episodes that she was in 
So, yeah, I don't know. She's she's had a really phen- phenomenal career. A lot of genre stuff, specifically superhero stuff, but also with Firefly. Just it, all over this kind of space. So I think she's going to continue popping up in a lot of other things as well. She's an actress that just elevates everything that she's in. It's just every performance that she has, she blows me away. She's an incredible performer. She's just... She's great. She's really good. She has great techniques. She has. She looks great. She embodies her role really well in everything that she does. And I don't know. I would not love this film nearly as much without her performance in this one. Well, and I think also from what I was reading, maybe you know a little more, it looks like she also exerted a fair amount of influence on her character for this film where she wanted to make sure that <laughs> the sex worker that she was playing was had a little more agency than than your typical sex worker in a movie or maybe what it initially was when she came in with. So we have that scene down. So we'll we'll talk about that a little later, but yeah, I think if it was someone else, I think you would not be as happy for multiple reasons. Yeah, for sure. And then I really quickly wanted to mention Ed Ed Scrain or Ed Scrine, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, just because I didn't know where I recognized him from, and I might be able to save some people some some headaches here, but he's Dario from Game of Thrones. And yeah, I, I wasn't able to piece that together until I paused and, and looked it up. What 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 season does he show up in? I don't recognize him at all. Dario? Isn't D- Dario's season's seasons one through three i think he's he's the he's the one who is attached to daenerys right i assume so you know i just the the uh, game of thrones is not a show that i have invested much time into at all and just little aside it's because I've been waiting to finish reading the books, and so I've been putting off the TV show. It's so, but yeah, I don't know. So I didn't recognize him at all when I watched. Well, the film. and you wouldn't because because his hair is like completely different. He has long long hair and or longer hair in in Game of Thrones. So yes, he's yeah he's he's Daenerys's advisor and enforcer. Okay. Yes, he is okay. the person that yeah. I thought he was. You you would recognize him if I sent you a, a picture of him, which I will after the recording. It sounds good, yeah. And then we also should very briefly talk about Gina Carano, who is in this film, who is someone that I didn't really know who she was until she was on Mandalorian. And then I became a lot more knowledgeable about who she was as there was all of this controversy that unrolled around her and a lot of it around surrounding the pandemic where she was sort of making fun of people for being for wearing masks and I think she came out as an anti-vaxxer and then eventually was like also anti the Black Lives Matter movement and then eventually just got fired from well and we should also mention even before all of that stuff, she had a very strong anti-trans position as well. And that kind of snowballed into all of these things. Oh, I didn't even know about that. Was that, that yeah. was, that came out in the Mandalorian stuff or was before all of that? 
she started it like as she really got on the anti-trans stuff as the Mandalorian was going um, and kind of hit it a lot harder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I do remember that. I just (laughs) forgot all of the horror. It was part of all the other stuff that she's been into. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, (laughs) I forgot she was in this movie. I did. And I saw her nose. Like, I got whiplash. I was just like, oh. Gina Carano is one of the few, you know, celebrities and actors in major projects that has blocked me on Twitter. Um, Oh, congrats. Yeah, personally, you know, does not like me. So she wouldn't recognize my name or anything if she she saw me or met me. But yeah, so I don't know. And something very innocuous, too, is uh, I was just like, you know, trans people have human rights, something like that. And she blocked me. So boom, get um, out of here. Yeah. So there you go. Gina Carano, not my favorite. Yeah. I also just watched... um the sixth fast and the furious movie and she was also in that so it's like she's been following me around yeah Get I, and she's fine in the movie i guess but she doesn't have a lot that she does in the film it, you know i don't know it's it's frustrating to me because um she's a character she's an actor that if those views weren't there that i really would have gone to bat for if and then she just, you know, I would have been rooting for her and she just threw away so much goodwill, in my opinion. Well, she's kind of interesting because, and it's true in the Fast and the Furious movie as well, because she was an MMA fighter before she was an actress, before she was a Correct, performer. Yes. And so a lot of her hand-to-hand stuff comes across very authentically for yes. good reason. And yeah, that that does make it all a bit of a bummer (laughs) well and there was there was some when she was in originally cast in deadpool i remember there was some sexist commentary about her being in the film Mm. um and and about her transition over to from mma into the movie business and so that's why for me that's a person that i would have really gone to bat for if she didn't then you know turn out to be just the worst uh yeah so thrilling (laughs) yeah on that note is there anyone else that you want to talk about or should we wrap up this first section that's it for me from this section okay what do you do you want to tell anybody anything if they're watching this for the first time yeah a content warning for all the content just everything yeah literally everything if you can imagine it it's in this movie yeah it's got you know uh incredible amounts of violence it's got a lot of sexual content it's got all the language and it also deals with a lot of very triggering things like it deals with um you know violence against children and child sexual assault and uh, or abuse and i don't know everything else it's a cancer story it's just got everything it's got every single triggering thing that you can imagine that's that's in this movie I guess the only other thing that I would say is because so much of the humor of this movie hinges on subversion of expectations from what a superhero film is and what a superhero film historically had been. I know that we're covering this as our first superhero movie for the podcast, but if you haven't seen any superhero movies, I don't know that I'd recommend you start here. I think I'd recommend you watch a couple others and i didn't come up with sort of a game plan beforehand but i guess i'd recommend probably just 
you can probably just run down like the first X-Men, the first Batman movie, Iron Man and Spider-Man. Yeah, probably those four or any combination of those four will will give you sort of a good entryway into what was what was going on here and what what this movie's sort of sending the conversation yeah the conversation that this is like it's in a dialogue with those films yeah and you can pick any of those but probably don't skip the first x-men because there are a little more a few more specific references that if you if that doing that little bit of homework or setting yourself is something you're interested in yeah, for sure. Though the story, the story is very much an independent story that you can watch on its own. But it's it, there is context, just like you know, just like any film. And there's it is a satire of a lot of these different kinds of things. And so knowing the references that it is satire, satirizing will just increase your your enjoyment of the film, from my perspective. Yeah, absolutely. If you're not interested in those sorts of things or you don't care, you can just go ahead and watch it. But also, I'm guessing the majority of people listening probably do have experience with superhero movies. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm and, not sure who uh, this comment is for. <laughs> <laughs> on the on a similar note to what you were saying is that this is like an irreverent comedy. So it deals with all of these things, all of these issues in a very irreverent way. Like it's not it, it approaches all of them with humor. There's a lot of heart in this film, but but you, it is important to just set up that context. This is intended to be like a comedy and go in expecting that. Yeah, if you wanted to have a beer on hand, that would probably, probably aid your enjoyment as well. Sure. Yeah. All right, let's take a break and we'll be back with spoilers. All right, welcome back. We are going to spoiler the movie now. We are going to spoil all of it. Matt, what was your reaction watching this for your fourth time? I had a lot of fun. So I watched this movie like three weeks ago, something like that, Mm -hmm. as part of our overall X-Men series rewatch. And I watched it with the family. So I watched it with Ethan, which was, you know, this was a big step up from what he normally is allowed to watch. So that was that was an adventure all on its own, and uh, watch it with Lori, who had not seen it beforehand. That's inaccurate. Lori had seen it beforehand. I had watched it with her the second time that I watched it. So, but it, she didn't remember pretty much anything in it. Addison didn't want to watch it, and our policy has always been, you know, if you want to watch something that's, you know, that you that might be considered on the boundary of what's old enough for you you want to we'll let you do it and you know we'd rather watch it with you and have a discussion she didn't want to so she hasn't seen it um and you know no pressure to watch it ethan really thoroughly enjoyed this one and so that really enhanced my enjoyment of the film so did laurie laurie really really loved this film more than i did especially on initial viewing so my experience with this film i enjoyed it a lot more after rewatching it with them and so i'm kind of in this weird space where i'm where my feelings are now have been upset and unsettled by my experience with watching the film i still think my experience with the film is more is more accurate to to how i felt originally and so i think that the experience of watching it with them 
is was like a high point for that film but i think my average enjoyment for this film if i were to rewatch it would still be around the place where i did the first time but it was a lot of fun to watch it with them this time yeah that that makes sense to me i so for context coming into this watch and i haven't re-ranked this but i had this as like my 52nd favorite movie of all time and it's my second favorite in the x-men universe so i have it right below logan and right above x-men and i i watched it by myself this time mary was sort of going back and forth about whether she was going to try and watch it i wasn't really sure she had asked me like if if i thought she would like it and i was like i don't really know but you'll probably know in the first 10 to 15 minutes whether or not you're gonna like it And then she just had other stuff going on that day, so she didn't watch it with me. I do kind of wish that I had gotten her to watch it with me because so much of what I enjoyed about this movie the first time was the surprise and, like, discovering it and, like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe they actually went there with this. And so I didn't really get that experience again. I hadn't forgotten a lot of that experience so a lot of it wasn't fresh and felt just a little staler and didn't have sort of the same magic of the first time two things that were different for me a little bit this time was i didn't remember how good the action sequences were particularly that first extended action sequence that is really three different action sequences split in yes split into one it is just I was really blown away by how good that was. And I'm guessing a lot of like my memory of how much I enjoyed this movie hinges on how good that was. It's just not something that I specifically remembered. So that was pretty surprising. And then, unfortunately, and I guess this will have very slight spoilers for the opening of Deadpool 2, but... Unfortunately, Deadpool 2 does something that I like a lot less in, and I guess if you listen to the last podcast, you probably already know what that is because we talked about it, but it unfortunately affects my point of view of this movie because there's a lot of, in my initial viewing, there's a lot of like really sexual and crass humor in this movie that... I can sort of go like one of two ways on that humor. Like I tend to really like that humor if I feel like it's coming from a good place. And if I feel like it's coming like, especially if it's coming from a place of wordplay or shock value, but is not intended to make anybody uncomfortable or make anyone like, like if the humor isn't based in particularly making women uncomfortable at it, then like I'm a lot more likely to enjoy it. But because of what happens in Deadpool 2, it sort of made me revise my opinion or revise how I viewed a lot of that humor in this movie. And I think, so I think the reason I gave it a pass initially or the the reason I found it funny at the time was, I think it was probably twofold. One of it, it was, I just wanted to like it. Like I wanted to have a good time in the movie. But also, as you said, like, it's a movie with a lot of heart. And I think 
the character of Wade Wilson and the character of and Ryan Reynolds himself like I think a lot of times they go out of the way out of their way to show you that like he is a good guy or someone who you'd like ultimately consider a good guy for an anti-hero and so I think that let me enjoy a lot of that in a way that was just a little tarnished this time yeah and well for me as well just to piggyback off of what you're saying is that when I watched this film originally, it felt like it was trying to approach the sexual comedy in a very sex positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't trying to be like shaming. It was trying to, a lot of it felt like it was specifically trying to, to look at things from a female experience and validating those kinds of things. And then making I don't know, drawing on that humor in ways that were affirming, but having that scene happen in Deadpool 2 where a uh, where a female character is um, violently fridged makes it really difficult to look at that stuff in the same kind of context. For me, having just watched Deadpool 2 recently and then watching this one i don't know my feelings are in turmoil about it in some ways it kind of makes me enjoy the things that are good about the first deadpool a lot more and like they stick out to me the the things that i liked were in much clearer focus but then the things the things that i kind of just ignored or let slide the first time i they stuck out to me more as well and i couldn't I don't know. I don't think there is justified. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes total sense. Sounds like we had kind of a similar reaction, although it is kind of like why I wish I'd had the experience of watching it with someone who hadn't watched it before just to sort of see what the reaction was. Although I don't actually think Mary would have liked it very much, so I don't know that that would have been all that illuminating. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a difficult one. I don't know. For for my family, it landed well, but you know, I don't know. It's it's really tricky because I watched it. You know, Ethan doesn't hasn't developed really good instincts on all of that stuff, so it's hard to tell. You know how he would be reacting to that. Again, Laurie thoroughly enjoyed the movie, and it's, it became one of Laurie's favorite superhero films after this. So. <sighs> I don't know. The, for for us, it was opened up a lot of conversations mm-hmm. about things that we about those kinds of topics, and so that I found particularly valuable. But part of the value in that, especially with Deadpool two and the context of this, and being able to discuss the way that these films treat female characters, if part of our value came in that discussion. But. I don't know. It's it's hard. It's hard, and it's hard when you have something that shifts the context of things and to not see it with that context impacting the way that you see it. Yeah, so one thing that we should say, that, and I didn't know this until afterwards, and it may have helped me out a little bit, is Deadpool 2. So Deadpool 1 and Deadpool 2 have the same script writers, but they have different directors. And yes. so... That I think it is fairly easy to concoct a story where, like, the same pieces of the script are there, but they're able to be given 
a different point of view depending on who the director is and sort of the way the story unfolds and how all of that happens. So I, I have no sense if that's true or not here, but it does sort of account for some of that different feeling, I think. The the Tim Miller left the well, he was kind of ousted from the project because of major creative differences. It is unclear what those are, but from what I was able to piece together, it's not around this issue and it's more about the X Force stuff, the which happens in the second film, which doesn't really impact this one. But wanted to turn it into more of like a big blockbuster tentpole action film with characters that could be seated for other films, like turning it into more of a franchise. So that's kind of where the disagreements came from. And the directors for Deadpool 2 are, are not uh, attached to Deadpool 3. So so that might have some impact on it as well. The other thing for me that, I don't know, as part of the conversation is when I've read interviews with the writers and with Ryan Reynolds, when like it gets explained to them the concept of fridging, they seem pretty understanding and apologetic and like they just did not like the the choice was made out of a total lack of awareness with that said if you're writing a major superhero film that draws on so many different references and is critiquing the structure of superhero stories not knowing what fridging is before going into that seems like an incredibly big oversight in 2018 too in 2018 yeah, yeah exactly it's not like it's pre-Twitter or something. Yeah, exactly. So, like, a major oversight. But from the discussions I've seen, it's been acknowledged that, yes, it was a mistake. And they haven't really justified that it was the... They understand the the that there is a different kind of sexual power dynamics that, that complicates that in a way that makes it very unsatisfying. So, I don't know. That, that might... I, I, it remains to be seen what happens in Deadpool 3, I guess, is is where that conversation is going and whether that's whether they've kind of learned some from that. Yeah, I, I guess we'll we'll find out. But for now, why don't we move into the scenes and, and talk about those? Yeah. So the first thing that we want to talk about here is the 12 bullet scene, which mm-hmm. is just an incredible action sequence and uh, really made me feel fall in love with the scene. You had mentioned beforehand that the film starts out with basically three action sequences that are all basically tied together into one action sequence. And this is kind of the, the 12 bullet scene is kind of the second of those major accents. Yeah. Uh, that's what I yeah. have in my notes. Uh, action sequences. And, but it's, it's just, it's a really good action scene. And the, the choreography of putting together this scene is incredible. And it's the, just the way that they use the special effects also worked really well for me. I can't break down everything that happens in this scene because there's so much. But one of the things in particular is it starts out and Deadpool is looks at how much ammo he has left and sees that he has 12 bullets. And he's, so he tells them, I only got 12 bullets. Some of you are going to have to share. <laughs> um, and so then he goes through and, you know, fights all these baddies. And he's trying to, like, conserve his bullets but then waste some because, you know, one guy falls on the ground. He shoots him three times. And he's like, ah, stupid. 
ah, but it was worth it and uh, all these kinds of things. And so there's a lot of jokes that he goes through as he's going through this incredible fight choreography. And then, you know, he ends up using the last bullet, jumps through the air as he's going through the air. It happens that three guys line up and then shoots. The bullet goes through all three of their heads at once. And that's kind of the end of that action sequence with, I don't know, a lot of interesting things that go on along the way. Yeah. And one of the things, I think one of the things that I was not expecting going into this movie the first time and had forgotten and was pleasantly surprised the second time was I didn't expect there to be all of these amazing acrobatics from Deadpool. And all of them are filmed really spectacularly and it's super smooth and some of it's slow motion some of it's real time but all of it just really works and the editing for all of it really works so you really get the feeling of how cool it is that he's jumping in the air and doing like I don't know the gymnastic terms but like whatever a couple couple sideways flips and then shooting shooting the bullets and they're dead on and like it just feels cool and it feels exciting and it really captures that like comic book feel and that comic book movie feel yeah, in a it way does. that yes. I feel like is really only been replicated in Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and that's part of why it's just so surprising to see in a live action movie that yeah it feels really cool yeah, like if this is if this was an MCU f- movie, then it would have like one of uh, we were discussing this past week our favorite fight scenes from the MCU, and this would be in the top five for me because it's just like you said, it is so acrobatic. It is there is so much movement, and it's so dynamic, and that's one of the things that I love from the perspective of the way that he approaches it. That like. He comes from behind this car and then moves in a really dynamic way between all the different parts of the set pieces. And it uses his powers in a very in a very cool way that you can see kind of not only his regenerating abilities, which he uses in several parts, including where he has a hole in his arm and he shoots a bullet through the hole in his arm to hit somebody. But additionally, his kind of medium awareness and his understanding of the structure of film. And that ties into the way this fight scene is choreographed. So those are some of the things that I really liked about that. Yeah, well, and there's also, um, I think it's maybe his 11th bullet or the second bullet that he that he shoots is there's a shot. He has gotten a hole in his hand and you get the camera shot through the hole in the hand as the guy who we don't yet know is Francis, but is Francis sort of drives into view in the shot. And I just thought that was such a clever and cool, like it was just a cool shot. And as you said, a great use of his powers and what other movie are you going to get to see that in, you know? Yeah. It's even in like a, Another movie that may have a character who regenerates, you're not going to be able to see it with the same kind of level of violence, so it it won't come across in quite the same way. So it's using all of these factors to really capitalize on this moment. One of the things that's that's interesting to me about this, so there is a very long-standing trope in films, which is the counting bullets trope. Mm-hmm. Uh and you have to like you know pay attention to the bullets that you're that everybody's firing. This is very f- 
very famous from the Dirty Harry films, you know, where he says, you may be thinking to yourself, did he shoot five bullets or six and all of that stuff. And this is kind of turning it on its head because it is Deadpool that has to count his own ammo. And usually the trope is played from the other angle of paying attention to the ammo that the other people are using. But since Deadpool is the one counting it, he's having to conserve it and pay attention to what he's doing. And it feels like limiting his resources in this way is it forces him to be more creative in his approach to the scene, which creates all of that, all of that feeling of movement and dynamism in the in the scene yeah and the other thing and this is where ryan reynolds like this movie works because of ryan reynolds it works because of his charisma and it works particularly because of the charisma he's really able to get on just line deliveries which is pretty impressive in my opinion and the like he just nails or they with the editing however however it all comes together really are able to nail the comedic timing through yeah. that really keeps this entire sequence and all three of these action sequences that make up the first hour of the movie basically really just humming along in yeah yeah it's a, all of this all of the parts work together in concert really well the action the comedy the just the deconstruction of typical tropes, all of those kinds of things, they all work in tandem and they're firing on all cylinders. Even Ryan Reynolds did a lot of the stunt work on this one because, again, just for budget reasons, they were limited on how much access to stunt to stunt workers that they had. So they did have stunt workers on for him, but some of the things, because of the limitations of budget, they just had to have him do because of the special effects stuff or because they didn't have in uh, enough people to cover all the different stunts that had to be done. And so a lot of the work is him. He just does a lot of it. I mean, that makes sense. Like, it makes sense why it all sort of times out so well. None of it really feels like... I mean, certainly when the acrobatics are happening, I'm wondering, like, who's doing that? But most of the time, I'm not thinking about how they had to piece it together and make the make the timing work. It all really feels pretty seamless. Yeah. A lot of the acrobatic stuff is CGI, actually. Um, it's oh, just a really? CGI. Yeah. So, and it's, it just, again, it comes down to budget. They didn't have the, they had to shut down like an entire freeway in Vancouver. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe is where it was filmed. <laughs> Vancouver or Toronto. I can't remember where in Canada it was filmed, but they had to shut down the whole freeway. Um, and so it, on the signs everywhere, it said, um, the freeway was shut down for Ryan Reynolds. And so he was the most hated man in the city for like you know, <laughs> a few weeks. But they just didn't have enough time. Uh, Yes, he is Canadian, one of uh, Canada's, you know, favorite sons. Mm -hmm. But so they didn't have, they couldn't, they didn't have enough time to shoot to get the angles and to iterate on that scene, the acrobatic part, because you need to like try it a few times to get it work and they just didn't have time for that. So they're like, we'll just have to CGI that part and make it work because we don't have the freeway for long enough. So, yeah. That's kind of wild. Yeah, it looks really good to me. I'm not very yeah. good at discerning those things, but I yeah, I couldn't tell. 
Well, that's one of the things that they talk about is that Tim Miller's influence on this is he's really good at figuring out where you can you can put the CGI in that it will feel seamless to the viewer. And it's just mm. a psychology kind of thing. He just has a really good sense of the things that a viewer is going to just just what's the word for this? Like they'll just suspend their disbelief. They just won't see it because it's moving too quickly and so they yeah. aren't being close enough to it. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. Uh, so really, really good, really good work on this. The other thing that I found interesting was this scene was originally titled 16 Bullets in the script. But because of the budget limitations, they couldn't afford, <laughs> they couldn't afford 16. So 25% budget cut, 25% bullet cut. Yeah, exactly. So once once the and literally once they cut the budget, they were like, we need to cut some stuff. And this was one of the major scenes. They said, you know what, we'll cut down, you know, 25% of the bullets. And that should reduce our CGI bill by quite a bit and just shorten the scene up. So yeah, that's funny. And they also I mean, and he just wastes a couple of bullets too. you know, yeah, he just waste several of the bullets uh i love in this scene how each of the bullets as it comes out it's numbered uh and you see the shell like coming out and you see the number on the shell as it goes so yeah it's good yeah do we want to talk about our next scene um yeah let's go on to the next scene i think it comes right after this right uh it's i think or is it in the middle i don't know it's weird because he shifts the timeline a whole bunch so down so um did i yeah, so the bullet sequence ends with him skewering the guy. And then he he has the funny line of, I bet you're, wait a, you're thinking, wait a minute, my boyfriend said this was a hum- uh, superhero movie. But he just turned that guy into a fucking shiskabob. Chis- <laughs> yeah, that part. Wait, how do you pronounce that word? Shiskabob. Shiskabob, uh, yeah, there's a sh. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> And then it fla- it flashes back to two years ago. So, and before you get the the love montage, you get a little bit of time where he's taking down a pizza delivery stalker. Yes, he takes down a pizza delivery stalker. And this is one of the things that it kind of throws me off for the film, just real quick on the pizza delivery stalker, is, you know, he really, it comes across really feminist i don't know if that makes sense because yeah he's yeah he's talking about like the guy is a stalker and the guy is violating this girl's boundaries and he's talking about how you know like he the guy just doesn't understand this and he needs to learn it and threatens his life in order to get him to learn this thing so i think that's part of you know one of the scenes that makes a lot of this other stuff work that it does in the rest of the film. Yeah, this and the sequence we're about to talk about, but in, yeah. and this one ends with that pretty young woman or teenage girl kind of like wanting to fawn over him and he just is not interested, you know? He's just like, yeah, nope, I don't do that. And it, yeah, it really helps the movie out. Yeah, it does. Both. So, yeah, let's talk about him him meeting Vanessa here. So there's this, like, bar that he goes to. What is it? St. Margaret's, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes into this bar where he gets his mercenary work and all of that stuff. And he ends up meeting up with Marina Baccarin. And they make horrible, very offensive jokes to each other. But, you know, in a, in a way that's endearing. I don't know if that makes sense. About yeah, no, horrible trauma. Yeah. And so 
so they, you know, make these jokes with each other and, you know, there's this guy that's like hitting on her and he he tells the guy like not to do that and all of those kinds of things, but she's clearly able to stand up for herself. And then, you know, they end up getting together, they end up going on a date. She is a sex worker. He asks how much money he can or how much time he can get with this much money. And she what does she say? She's like forty eight minutes. Um Mm-hmm. And so then they spend the 48 minutes going and playing skee-ball, which is, I, I love that subversion of the of yeah. the trope that it goes mm-hmm. on. So they go and play a little skee-ball together and they have a really nice date. And then it has this montage that was a lot of fun and just, I don't know, it's, it's a very sex positive mo- montage. And I enjoyed it a lot where... They're just having sex all throughout the year and it goes through each of the 12 months of them. Well, not you during Lent. Except for during Lent, of course, yes. But uh, it goes through different holidays, and it shows them, like, celebrating the different holidays with different sexual episodes and all of these kinds of things. A lot of really good jokes in there. And then it ends with him going to the restroom and then falling down and discovering that he has cancer. So that is kind of the structure of this love montage. Yeah, and I agree with you. Like, this does so much work in helping me, like, like a lot of, especially in my initial viewing, of liking a lot of the sort of crass and sexual humor because it does feel like it's, like, his mercenary persona when he does that and not who Wade Wilson, like, really is. You know what I mean? Because he is so... Tay barked. He is so respectful of her and like they so clearly have a good relationship. And I also love that they didn't like it's never a problem for him that she is a sex worker. It's just like not an issue, which is something that I remember being surprised by at the time. I remember being surprised that they were mature enough to do that in 2016. And I thought that was really great. Well, not only is it that he that he responds positively to it, like it's not shaming in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just treats her sex work as any other job. And then, uh, but additionally, he doesn't view it as a reason to violate consent boundaries. And this whole sequence really affirms consent boundaries really well. But additionally, it never sees it as a thing that he needs to rescue her from. Um, yeah. And so it's so it's very this part was very sex worker positive from my perspective you know i'm not a sex worker so i'd love to hear thoughts from sex workers and their thoughts on on this film but this scene works really well for me there's a scene that happens at the strip club later on that feels like maybe is a little bit more isn't as nuanced and maybe is uh, doesn't handle things in uh, quite as well but, you know, you can kind of forgive it because of the work that the first part of the film does. And it's not until, again, you see Deadpool 2 that some of the context changes in the way that you're viewing it. Yeah, I definitely bumped on the same. I think I probably bumped on the same sequence as you because I was surprised when it goes back to her at the club that now she's being a waitress. And at that yeah. point, it did sort of imply like a retconning of oh, now she doesn't have to be a sex worker, even though that wasn't something that was discussed or brought up 
anywhere else in the movie. And so, yeah, I definitely thought it was strange this time, although I don't think I noticed it the first time. Yeah, very possible. With that said, like, I assume that, you know, sometimes job duties will will kind of rotate in in that kind of setting. So it's like there's po- a possible way to define that to to what's the word for this to headcanon this so like she still is working in that job she's just working the floor on this particular occasion and they probably just wanted to make sure she had clothes on for when they went in through the next scene or whatever yeah and you can also like make an argument that like wade has been gone for a long time at this point so maybe you don't want to like create the idea that like he's gone and so she had to go back to sex work and he might be like upset that she did that or like that might be the audience's assumption that he would be upset that she had to do that and you just don't really want to have to deal with that jealousy aspect of their relationship at all which was something that I was kind of thinking they were going to do or a little worried about so yeah I don't know it's it's a tricky situation but again it, it felt like they had earned a lot of they earned a lot of goodwill through this montage scene beforehand. And so when I first saw it, it was easier for me to pass off all the rest of it. It's only in hindsight that, you know, it it changes the way that I view it. Um, yeah. One of the other things that I loved about this love montage scene is, you know, there is a pegging scene in this one. And <laughs> so, you know, I really enjoyed that. That's great. Pegging's been in a lot in the news lately because of, you know, stuff going on with the royal family. But, uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So very timely for anyone that happens to listen to this very soon. But in any case, yeah, I don't know. It's also kind of cool that our, we've had two movies with pegging in them and they've both been in the Hulu season. The other one being Palm Springs. Look at that. It's amazing. Um, Which I thought handled this better, better. Although I guess that one wasn't pegging, right? That was just, uh, gay sex. Yeah, so right. just... A, yeah. Yes, and it is one thing that I want to just bring up real quick about Deadpool is Deadpool is cano- canonically, like, bi slash pan and has many very varied sexual escapades in the comics of, you know, just all kinds of different things. And that is clearly signaled to me in this film. And the pegging scene, not in particular, pegging is something that, you know, like uh, heterosexual couples can enjoy just as much as any other couple. But there are a lot of parts throughout this film where it signals to me that Deadpool's character is bi slash pan. It's the way that they specifically identify it sometimes in the comic shifts. So I don't want to, like, pick any particular way to phrase that. But I really appreciated that this film is is honoring that in a way that, again, felt sex positive and felt, felt, feels like it's acknowledging that part while also telling this specific story with him in a relationship with, with Vanessa. Yeah, the, the other thing this sequence does, I'm a really big fan of when comedies treat you as an adult and exp- don't like spell out the entire joke for you. And the, one of the places that I thought they did that was in the proposal sequence there's really quick like blink and you'll miss it where he proposes and then has the ring and she very quickly says where were you hiding that and he says nowhere and then there's just a very quick shot of his butt and 
I thought that was very elegant, understated humor that I really appreciated. Yeah, on, it was great. On rewatch and then when I was rewatching the scene for the podcast. Yes. Yes, it's great. I also love the Wham stuff. Um, <laughs> yes. So the, the music, just quick oh, yeah. aside here. The music in this film was really, really good. There's so much good music, including one of my favorite songs ever, which is the Shoop song. The which you know is it, also Ryan Reynolds' favorite song, apparently. But all the Careless Whisper stuff and the other Wham stuff, just great. Yep. I don't think I have anything else to say about this sequence. Should we I have move nothing on? else either. We can move on. Okay. The next sequence that I wanted to talk about is, and this is one of the things I love about this movie, and also on rewatch, one of the sections where structurally I felt like it fell a little bit short. But so it has the previous sequence, the love montage that we talked about, where it does feel like it's doing a little bit of commentary or send up or satire on sort of your typical rom-com genre. And then in the sequence where you find out how he got his powers and how he becomes a mutant, you get sort of a send up of a horror movie and both of them he calls them out it the he does it in a voiceover before the love montage where he says this is a love story and then in the middle of this one as he's sort of it's going to black and he's he's getting the whatever the oxygen sucked out of the tube he says just kidding it's a horror movie and the we can talk a little bit specifically about parts of this sequence that I liked a lot. But I did want to ask you, like, how how do you feel or how do you think about sort of the structure of this movie? So I did write it down and it does do, it has these three action sequences that we talked about. And each one is intercut with a little bit of, well, actually the first one is, I thought it was intercut with a flashback with backstory, but the first one is actually intercut with, introducing colossus and teenage negasonic or negasonic teenage warhead yeah yeah cool name yeah it's a great name and then so the second one flashes back and does the love story and then it does the finale of this sequence of this opening sequence after he falls or i guess the finale is him trying breaking all of his limbs fighting colossus yes probably and then the this sequence where the the torture sequence and by the time this ends we're an hour and four minutes so 64 minutes into an 110 minute movie which then means so the movie's basically split into two parts it's just the last part is an entire finale sequence, basically. Right. I mean, there's the approach to the inmost cave and all of that, but then a finale sequence. So does this... I guess the reason I'm curious is on paper, it doesn't seem like it should work. Like, I just look at it and it's like, this doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. But watching it, I think it works completely. I was curious yeah. how you feel about it. 
Well, and that's part of the 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 metafictional approach to it is because they're breaking up that first action sequence into the different parts and then flashing back or or flashing sideways. I don't know with the Colossus stuff. Yeah. Um, how they're going between different parts. It's giving you the motivation for why all of this is happening. And you're really getting into Deadpool's mindset and mm-hmm. where his perspective is coming from. And because all of it is told through this narrator that we find very compelling, I think he keeps it all pieced together because he really holds our hand through the process of how the story all all works, how it all fits together. And each of the flashbacks that they use, they int- they use specifically to introduce a conflict that is happening at that moment mm-hmm. on the uh, on the 12 bullets sequence. So I think that all of that works really well. But as you said, like it's a it's a really interesting strange structure to use. And it's one of the things that I find really re- refreshing about the film. Yeah, I agree. It did kind of remind me of Slumdog Millionaire where yes. <laughs> it sort of is flashing back and forth between the present and flashbacks. And then finally yeah. you catch up and it's like, oh, what's going to happen now? Basically using a framing device and the whole story is mm-hmm. telling flashbacks while we're going through this framing device. In in Slumdog Millionaire, it's the <laughs> the framing device of him playing the millionaire game. In this one, it's the murder of multiple people on a freeway. Yeah, well, and also the the device of having Deadpool able to break the fourth wall. Yes, One of the things that I really like about this torture sequence or this horror movie sequence is it. So it is part of the time that you get to see Ryan Reynolds unmasked and you get a lot of time with him unmasked, particularly in all of these flashback sequences. But this is probably the part where like his humor and his comedic timing, like really gets to shine. You get, you get a lot of really nice, moments here where he (laughs) tells Ajax that there is something between his teeth and oh man that was bothering me for a long time and then probably one of my biggest laughs in in the movie this time was because I thought the joke was over but then after he looks in the mirror and he says ah made you look (laughs) and I was just so so caught off guard by that and so so yeah, the call surprised. the callback to it is really good. Mm-hmm. And it it finally culminates in a line that hit me pretty hard, especially because I think there like it w- it was weird watching this at the time that we're in, and it's Ajax says to him, "One thing that never survives this place is a sense of humor," and there's a lot of discourse going on right now about how that we're recording this like a month after Thor Love and Thunder came out and this isn't a Thor Love and Thunder podcast so we don't have to get into it but there's a lot of discourse about how comedy interacts with tragedy and how comedy interacts with I guess everything that isn't comedy and so I spent a lot of time thinking about this line because of course we know that the common like wade wilson's sense of humor isn't going to go away in some senses it's going to maybe become a little more cynical or a little darker but mostly it seems like it's going to stay the same 
And this hasn't really been my, not that I've experienced a lot of tragedy, but it hasn't really been my experience with sad events or bad events. Like generally those times are just as funny. Um, It's something that you sort of need to get through, (laughs) get through that period. And it made me wonder who Ajax is really dealing with. I feel like they're probably just dealing with a bunch of humorless people. For sure, yeah. A lot of people that... uh, This is... I think part of it is that this is why Wade Wilson is so resilient. Is because of his humorous approach to things. He's able to... He's able to... Like, his humor is a superpower. Um, Yeah. And it's Mm -hmm. probably his his most important superpower. Is the humorous approach that he takes to... That he uses to process terrible terrible things that happened to him yeah 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 and the you get to see it dichotomized with is that a word uh in sure. stark contrast it is now with, with everything <laughs> that that happens during this sequence yeah and th- one of the things that you had mentioned before is that like this is we see him without the mask and then or we see him beforehand and then we see him without the mask and that was a very intentional part on the filmmakers where they intended to be about a third of the movie the first kind of third of the movie you would see ryan reynolds and then Mm -hmm. another third of the movie would be deadpool with the mask and another third of the movie is deadpool without the mask and they treated it as three different characters as they were coming up with the structure of the film um so So I I found that part that particularly interesting. And so after he goes through this process, you don't see any of the metafictional, the the fourth wall breaking until after he goes through this torture sequence. The the Ryan Reynolds face doesn't do that. It's not until you get Deadpool that he gains this medium awareness and his ability to to know that he's in a, a superhero movie. Oh, yeah, that was something that I was able to clock and able to sort of figure out. I think that that makes makes sense. Yeah. I, I got uh, another question for you here, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, we've got this horrible torture sequence in this film. Um, can you guess how many movies we've covered that have torture sequences in them on uh, the podcast? How many have we covered that have torture sequences? Yeah. Hmm. So this is our this is our fourth season, so 32 movies plus how many bonus episodes have we done? Two or three? We did uh, three because we yes. also did Matrix Resurrection. Yes, three. Yeah, three. Well, it feels like we haven't done that many, so I'm going to... Like, I know there was Slumdog Millionaire. I'm going to guess four or five. That's a good guess, but the answer is 12. Um, 12 <laughs> we have covered 12 films with torture sequences in holy them. cow with that said six of them came in this season uh there were torture sequences mm-hmm. well i'm counting one a little bit loosely so i'm not sure but there was a torture sequence in this film there was a torture sequence in looper when they're trying to figure out where uh the one guy that they're cutting the the parts of his body off there was slumdog oh, millionaire right. there was palm yeah. springs which has, you know, oh, uh, of course. Yeah. yeah, the torture sequence there. There's the Untouchables, which had that one torture sequence where they're trying to get the information oh, out of the yeah. guy. Um, and then funny. sort of Parasite is the one that's kind of I'm on the fence about. They, they, 
with this stuff happening, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. underground and all that stuff. Before that, though, we had um, six of them. You have there's a torture sequence in The Matrix Resurrections and in The Matrix, in The Lighthouse, The Princess Bride, and in Dune. And then I couldn't remember if there was in one in Mission Impossible or not. So uh, I know there are is in one of the Mission Impossible films, but I can't remember if it's in the first one. I don't think it is. I was just trying to think about that. So that would put us at 11, maybe 10 if you're not counting Parasite. But half of them have come in this season, the Hulu season. So we have discovered that Hulu is the streaming service of torture. (laughs) I bet if we tweet that, they'll retweet it. I bet that's how they want to be associated. (laughs) Probably, yeah. We we should definitely make that comment. Yeah. Oh, I did want to say the thing that in retrospect I dislike about this structure is I wish that there was one other genre that they specifically sent up. Like, it feels a little strange to me to to have it just stop it to, to have your rom-com sequence and to have your, the horror movie sequence. And I, like, I'm guessing they sort of justified it as, like, the rest is sort of an action movie send-up or the whole movie is a superhero send-up. But it, it doesn't feel... It isn't lampshaded in the same way, or it isn't called out in the same way. Yeah. And it would have it, been nice. What what I would have done if I were taking that specific comment is you'd have a section where where he's like trying to figure out where Francis is at or all that kind of stuff, and you just say, "Oh, now it's a mm-hmm. noir detective movie," you know. But it only takes. Yeah. You don't even really need to add some lines or anything. You can just kind of add that as a as a joke in there. Yeah, that would have been nice. You probably could have just made that like part of the approach to the inmost cave or something. What they honestly might have done, and I guess we can talk about this a little bit for the finale, is they might have been planning to do a full Matrix send up of the finale, and then that got scrapped. So possibly, yeah. So oh, the so the only other two things that I wanted to say about this is there was a feeling of. Once Ajax tells him that he's going to be a slave, like that their goal is to create slave mutants, there then you know that he's going to escape from here. And there was sort of a feeling of like, oh, I guess we're going to have to go through like some weird escape sequence. But instead, I thought what they actually did was really clever and really cool. I really liked him yeah. stealing the match from Gina Carano and then setting off a huge explosion like that. I wasn't expecting that to be, I I was expecting him to get out with strength, not with brains. And so brains, and then also (laughs) being able to utilize his newly found mutant power. So I really liked that. Yeah, I agree. I, I really like that as well. But I also, what I especially like about it is that the escape essentially fails and Ajax comes back and nails him to the ground with that that spike that he can't get out mm-hmm. of and, you know, just burns his body to the ground. That is, you know, essentially the way the Deadpool escapes is he gets burned completely away and then regenerates. And that's the thing that only Deadpool can do. Well, it succeeds in the sense that he doesn't become enslaved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that section was the other thing that I was going to mention from this sequence, which is that shot of him with that (laughs) impaled on that pole and the fire burning around him is just so cool. And it is not like you just wouldn't be able to get that with any other character and not have 
this like it would just feel different there's no way for it not to feel horrifying and unless it's deadpool yes and And it reminds me of there's this comment from i forget his name patrick rothfuss one of the comments that really has informed the way that i approach a lot of stories since i heard it was he talked about how you know killing off characters is just a lot of times it's boring because there are so many worse things than death that can happen to a character. And I remember when uh, Wolverine Origins came out, there was a lot of discussion, especially there was a Roger Ebert made the comment that you have this character that can regenerate. You don't feel any stakes. Like, there's... You don't feel like... You just don't feel like there can be any consequences for what happens. Deadpool's character, you know he's going to survive through whatever happens, but that's not necessarily... Like, he goes through things that are much worse than just dying off in so many of the things that he does. And this is one of those moments. Like, it's just so horrifying. And he feels every bit of this pain. And you can see how this is a worse fate than death for him. And then there are stakes for what happens to Deadpool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up. We've talked a lot about how <laughs> the complaint about if something can't end in death, then what's the stakes? And it's like... Uh, that doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. You could be impaled on a spike and left in a burning pit of fire for, you know, until every part of your body is burned away. That that seems like high stakes. Ow. Yeah, sounds miserable. Yeah. All right, do you have anything else you want to say about this sequence, or should we move on to our last one? That's all I've got about this sequence. Yeah. All right, so next up we have the finale, and the reason I wanted to talk about this is I don't remember being disappointed by this sequence in the movie theater, but this was probably the most disappointing thing to me on rewatch, especially because of how good all of those first three action sequences were. And I was like, oh, we are in for an absolute ride here at the end. And I remembered it being fun, but instead it sort of is just like, you get sort of a deus ex machina with, um, shoot, God, what is Colossus's? What is her name? Supernova. Megasonic Teenage Warhead. Yeah, Megasonic Teenage Warhead, which does just about exactly what you would expect it to do. And this, I alluded to it before, but they were planning on having this action sequence be completely different. And the sequence where they're getting all of the guns, they were supposed to use all of those guns and the reason they added the line about him leaving it in the taxi was because of the budget cuts like they just couldn't do all of the shooting and do all of the explosions and that's way more than 12 bullets what it is way more than 12 bullets that's for sure yeah so yeah they they couldn't afford to do all that stuff but i do love the line where I, i just love this like through line that they lampshade twice the deadpool you know he works really hard. He plans these things out, and then his plans completely fall apart because he forgets some part of it. And, you know, he just has yeah. to put in uh, his line, maximum effort, and just has to go and, and just figure it out. Yeah, and I don't know. What Did you – were you also disappointed by the finale? Or Oh, yeah, what, for sure. You... When, when I first saw it in the theater, I was disappointed by the finale. I felt like it had built up, up to it, and it just – the set piece to me was also kind of – 
uninteresting on that big boat and it just it yeah. didn't feel like they utilized it particularly well they just like have that big fight on the ground and then he gets shot up on top and then he fights with francis the fight with francis actually on the boat was quite good in my opinion um yeah that was nice yeah that part was good and there's a lot of like worry about what's going to happen to vanessa and how he's going to be able to fight back and then when he gets stabbed in the head and he like his brain is not working correctly and he's like seeing cartoon images and things all of those things work for me what didn't work for me very well was all of the fighting that was happening between everyone else negasonic teenage warhead and colossus and gina carano's angel dust and all of that stuff i i just did not feel compelled by any of that action at all. Yeah, I I wonder, I do wonder, because I think, like, Gina Carano obviously is very good at that sort of stuff, so I do wonder, like, how much more exciting that would have been if I didn't have the baggage with her that I currently have, and also, like, if I didn't know her history. So That's definitely part of it. But I, I do want to add on that part of it as well is that she doesn't really have much room to do that because she's fighting Colossus, who's an entirely CGI character. So there's mm-hmm. only so much you can do with That's that true. as well. So just like the choreography can't be as good. Yeah, that that is true. And I also like, I don't know, the, the whole ending of this sequence didn't really make a ton of sense to me with him telling her like she wasn't going to like it and then shoving her into the tube and it's like i don't know see like if it's a safe place seems like she's gonna like it fine i when he said that i thought it was gonna be something a lot worse and instead she just survived great you know (laughs) so yeah I, i thought the whole sequence just kind of didn't really make a ton of sense with the exception of the hand to hand between deadpool and ajax and then the cartoon images and all, all, the whole sequence after he gets stabbed in the head, I liked quite a bit, but probably would have liked it fine for a middle of the movie sequence rather than the climax of the movie. Yeah, it it doesn't hold up to the maybe part of it is that the the standard is just so high on that first action sequence that it's everything else is hard to live up to it. But I don't know. Yeah, that that part when I saw it in the theater and I didn't like it as much. I didn't have as much issue with it this time, but I think that a part of it is just that I've seen it now four times. You knew, and yeah, you knew what was coming. Yeah, I know what's coming, and there's some, I don't know, there's some good jokes in there as well. Like, the- one of my favorite jokes in the entire movie is when he meets the guy from the TGI Fridays. It's yeah, just, that's yeah, funny. It's great. So, sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, 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 I was just agreeing with you, like, everything has helped along a lot because they keep the humor constant. The humor's almost always funny, or if it's not funny, it's at least always enjoyable. And yeah, helps helps everything hum along. It definitely does. I don't know that I have a lot else to say about the finale here, though. So I one of the other things that I really loved is this moment where Colossus gets up and gives him the speech. In every superhero's life, people think oh, that it's yeah. being like a hero every day. You wake up a hero, you go to bed a hero. But it really comes down to four or five moments. And he's like, you're just getting boring. But I really like that as a deconstruction of that idea because I think that Colossus is just like wildly wrong. And it's like so out of step with every other hero that matters, which is this idea that... that who you are does matter and what you do 
on the day-to-day basis that that is what matters and i think that's one of the things that i find interesting about deadpool is that he really deconstructs this idea of like four or five moments and focuses more on like the choices that you make on a day-to-day basis matter much more than just four or five moments that you make a big decision in your life yeah i i also was having the same experience as colossus was giving that speech i was like this is not true at all yeah like you're (laughs) wrong dude I I don't I don't agree with this. Yeah, can you imagine like saying that to Spider-Man? He's like, "What? No, that's the whole thing is with great power comes great responsibility. That doesn't make any sense." Yeah, it's so, not with great power comes great responsibility four times. Yeah, exactly. So, and four times in your life you're going to have to be really responsible. No, that's that's ludicrous. It's just ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> if that were true, then he gets let off the hook for Uncle Ben after he's saved four people. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. No problem. Colossus, you're wrong. doesn't make any sense. I also couldn't remember, this is sort of unrelated to everything, in the Ultimate Series Colossus, like the Ultimate Series of comics, there's two like worlds in the Marvel comics, or I mean, there's a lot more than two, but in the Ultimate World, they made Colossus... Colossus is gay. Colossus has a boyfriend. And for some reason, I had this memory that he did in the movie as well. But I guess I implanted that memory because or maybe it happens in Deadpool 2. I don't remember it in Deadpool 2 either. But uh, Negasonic Teenage Warhead does have a girlfriend in Deadpool 2. Mm. So that might be what you're conflating the memory with. No, I think I just implanted the memory because I kept waiting for his boyfriend to show up. And then he never did. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess he's not here. Yeah. Yeah, I guess he's, I guess there's no boyfriend here. So, yeah. Do you want to move into cleanup? I'm yeah, let's move into cleanup. To see if I have anything. So you can go first. All right. So on cleanup. So there's one, one part of this that just really has aged poorly. It was problematic at the time period, and people called it out at the time period, but has just aged even worse at the time period, especially with Gina Carano's involvement. There's this transphobic joke in the torture sequence where she's, like, strong, and he responds, ooh, I'm calling Wang. It is an it, it is not a joke that should have been told, and it's transphobic, and, I don't know, it's not cool, and it sucks. So, oh, I didn't even, I watched it twice and I didn't even pick up that that was what the joke was. Yeah. And it's really fast too. Like it's, so you, it's easy to miss, but yeah, it's, it's just a straight transphobic joke. Yeah. (laughs) A a very straight transphobic joke. Yeah. It's no good. Yeah. It's no good. Uh, Especially with the, you know, um, with Gina Carano and the the turf comments, or not even a turf. She's not a not a. Uh, she's just anti-trans. Yeah. The oh, the only thing that I the, I mean, there's a million Easter eggs and a million callouts in this movie. Yes. Uh, but the it it does get us a little close to the stream at crossover because we do, he does call the recruiter Agent Smith. Which is, of course, a so uh, close reference yeah. to to the Matrix. So yeah, very. We got very close to having a streaming crossover. So close, so close. Not quite. Uh, we haven't had any streaming crossovers in a while. So ho- hopefully, in next season, we'll get some. No, I thought they were going to happen a lot, but I think we're just covering. Yeah, we're covering such a that. wide variety. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things that uh, I've found really interesting is the character Dopinder, the taxi driver. Um, oh yeah 
So this one's really interesting, but there's a lot that I can say about Dopinder. I, I find it fascinating, the story that's told with him. But in particular, Dopinder is a... The character is based on a childhood friend of Ryan Reynolds, who died, I believe, from cancer. Um, oh, no. And so that is where the character Dopinder comes from. And it's the same name, and the personality is very similar, except for, you know, the murderous stuff later on that happens, obviously. But so that one I found kind of interesting. And Dopinder as a character, I find very endearing, even though, you know, he's very questionable ethics uh, throughout the uh, film. Yes, I do. I mean, I do truly love that sequence where uh, Wade Wilson is saying out loud what he thinks Colossus wants him to say and then yeah. giving the bad advice under his breath. I just think it's, I mean, clearly that humor is extremely dark, but I think his timing on it is so funny and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really good. It's really good. Yeah. And, like, you know, Dopinder has some boundary issues, and he needs to, like, grow up a little bit and all of those kinds of things. But the it's it's a fascinating character. I don't know. I, I enjoyed that, that stuff. High 10. High 10. Yeah. Did you have anything else for a cleanup? I, I'm through my stuff. We were able to cover it in the scenes. That I covers it all. In the scenes. Yeah, that's it for me. Oh, I did mean to talk a little bit or at least mention at the top of the show in the front half that Deadpool debuted in 1991 as a villain in the comics and then since became beloved and went on to become an anti-hero. But Makes sense. I guess we'll leave yeah. it here at the end. Sounds good. Okay, so that will do it for us for this week. That'll do it for us on Hulu. And yeah, I guess... Uh, not so fond farewell to having commercials in the move, middle of our movies. I will, I will not be missing that next week. Or I guess we'll probably we haven't recorded them yet, or we haven't even scheduled them yet. But we probably will have some bonus episodes in between season four and season five. But we'll be back with our season five proper, and we're we're gonna do the big one. I know we've been waiting, we've been holding out, but we're finally gonna go to Netflix, and we are gonna kick it off with a bang. We are gonna do the James Bond pseudo reboot Casino Royale from 2006, and I'm a pretty big James Bond fan, and yeah. Matt is not so much a James Bond fan, so this'll, it'll be a really fun one, and it'll be a, a nice way to kick off, kick off that podcast, and as always, we haven't settled the rest of our lineup for that season yet so if you have any feedback if there are any movies that are on netflix that you really 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 want us to cover you'd be really interested in us covering go ahead and drop us a line and we can't promise we would do it we only have time for eight movies in a season but if we can fit it in we will try to do that and if you want to get in touch with us you can find me on twitter i am at zvazda Z-V-A-Z-D-A and you can find Matt at O-R-A-Y-M-W O-R-A-Y-M-W and if you want to send us an email because you just have too many movies to suggest and it's way longer than 240 characters you can do that at podcaststreamit at gmail.com and as always we do want to say thank you to David Stewart aka Estoriel for 
being our beta listener, for being so supportive, and also for making us sound good. If there wasn't a long pause in the middle of this podcast while I ran to the restroom, that's because David did his job. And if there is, it's because he thought it was funny to leave it in, which I guess more <laughs> power to him. Sounds great. I think that's it. Do you- do you have anything else, or do you want a closing question? Let's go on to the closing question. All right, it's you this week, so what do you got? So I decided not to go with, like, uh, some of our questions have been kind of silly or, you know, whatever, but since this is our first, like, major superhero film that we've covered, uh, mm. I just wanted to know, what are your what are your favorite uh, superheroes, the characters? Oh, I mean, A number one is probably Spider-Man. And then number two is actually debuting soon in the MCU, and it's Ironheart, who I think has not gotten as much. There just haven't been enough Ironheart comics, and I really, really love what little we've seen of Riri Williams. And so I am pretty stoked for that and hope they do well by her. And then after that... I probably it's kind of weird because every no one likes him like they keep making jokes about how no one likes him but I really love Hawkeye and I think a lot of that is Mm. probably due to that Matt Fraction run which I really love but also I just kind of like sort of the street superheroes and I love the gadgets of the arrows and so yeah I'd say those are my top three I like it. Very good. Uh, we share number one in Spider-Man. Um, Spider-Man's my favorite. Yeah. I love Spider-Man. I love all the different versions of Spider-Man. And uh, Gw- um, Spider-Gwen is another one of my fi- favorites. I'm just counting it in that category of all the spider-related superheroes. Yes, After the- Miles and Peter Parker are both, like, they share the Spider-Man mantle for me. Yeah, same. Miss Marvel, I also love a ton. Miss Marvel is one of the comics that uh, that I collect, so I have, you know, <laughs> everything of Miss Marvel, all the like a bunch of different crossovers and all of those different things, and really enjoy those. And then I'd probably say this one might be cheating a little bit as a superhero, but probably also not super surprising to you. I really love Sandman from the mm-hmm. DC DC comics. The the character dream of the Eternals. And there is a, there is a new Netflix adaptation that is coming out very soon that I am very excited for with Sandman. So very hyped about that. Hype, hype, hype. Yeah. Very excited. Yeah, it's going to be good last few months of the year here. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Lots of good content coming around. Mm-hmm. All right. So that will do it for us this week. And we'll, talk to you for some bonus episodes and then season five sounds good bye